market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett. I'm the deputy political editor of the paper. And here with me this week, as always, we have our political editor, Alistair Grant, and a special guest in advance of SNP conference, uh, the SNP MP, Stuart MacDonald. Welcome to both of you. Welcome, Stuart. Good to be here. How's life in SNP Westminster Group? (laughs) Well, we've been on recess for the past, I don't know how long it's been, but the past couple of weeks, uh, which has been good. It's been good to be back in the constituency for a bit and do some do some non-Westminster things. Um, but of course, we've got conference. We're back in Westminster next week. I've got a Prime Minister's question on the first week back. Um, but it's been rocky, but it's, it's uh, you know, we're a, we're a decent group. We'll, we'll be all right. We're obviously going to talk about many of the things that's been going on, but you, you say it's been rocky. I mean, the SNP's been thumped in a by-election. It's had an MP defect to the Tories, slumping in the polls, and it's had a council resign over a racist comment, and that's only in the last week. Your party's in crisis, isn't it? You know, I love coming on here. It's always a real laugh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really cheers me up for the weekend. Um <laughs> Look, everything you've just mentioned is obviously, to say it's not good would be to understate it. Not only did we lose the by-election, we got scalped in it. Uh, We've obviously had a a serving MP defect to the Tories, which uh, if somebody can explain that one to me, I'd love to hear it. And I caught up with this morning the last instant you mentioned about the comments from, I think as a council in Aberdeen, right? Yeah, which were you know just deeply unwise at best and outright offensive and wrong. So it's not been a it's not been a great productive week for us politically. Add that on to all of the various dramas, twists and turns of the past few months. It's fair to say party members, party supporters uh, out there in the country have been put through the ringer. So the conference, I think, is a really good focal point for us to do what Hamza says we need to do, regroup, rethink things, and start that. And you're not going to achieve that over a weekend, but I think it'll be a good springboard to get us back into action and and just get stuff together again, get our mojo back, which is what we need to do. I mean, the independent stuff at the weekend is, you've been quite outspoken. Obviously, you you write for the Scotsman regularly as well, where you've spoken about, um, I think you termed it quasi-fundamentalism in your last column. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that as in regards to what the party's looking at at the conference this weekend? Because there's the, the big debate on independent strategies on Sunday. So I've written in the pages of the Scotsman many times. Every Saturday, my column, your listeners can can read it. And I've written many times since early this year when the de facto referendum issue was kind of 
coming to a head. If you remember, we were meant to have a special conference in March under the previous leader, and obviously that hasn't happened, in which we were going to decide over whether we have a de facto referendum, and if so, when, and what it looked like. And to me, that speaks to a more fundamentalist positioning of the party that I think would be a mistake. I've never supported a de facto referendum. I laid out in a paper in February this year the various reasons why I thought it was the wrong route for the party to go down. None of that has changed uh, in my view. In fact, if anything, I would say that the the shifts in in politics that we're seeing happening at the minute in Scotland, uh, I think it reinforces my view that we should resist the temptation to and this is what I wrote about last week and what I'm writing again for the for the column this weekend, resist the temptation to rush to a kind of core vote strategy, a base voter base strategy. I think that would misread our party's history. I think it would misread the mood of our own supporters in the country. I think it would misread, most importantly, the mood of the country at large. And in fairness to, to Hamza, Hamza's put forward his own motion to the conference, which according to media coverage, has now slightly changed in the past 12 hours or so. And so we'll see what happens with that. And there are a series of amendments um, to that. I won't bore your listeners with all the details of those. And the party's going to have a debate on this. It's going to come to a decision. And then we're going to move forward. But I'm strongly of the opinion, and will strongly make the case, that if it starts to feel like we are closing in on ourselves, on the issue of independence, rather than doing what we do best, build big coalitions, big ambitious and generous coalitions of voters from across the political spectrum, I think that would be a mistake. We need to think big, think generous, and crucially, think long term. We need an end to the short term tactics, which I think have kind of partly put us into this holding pattern we've been in. We're not going to be able to breach that in one go. It's going to take time, effort, thought and discipline. What do you think is the the right message to be sending from this conference? Because I mean, the, the, the motion that's at conference at the minute is a word salad, one senior SNP person. I put it to them, is this motion basically something for everyone? You know, anyone who reads it can find what they want in it. And that's what its intention is. And they, they were like, pretty much, you know, we're not trying to say much here other than what people want to read into it. But that that's that's a problem, surely, going forward? I mean, what would you prefer the messaging to be? So I think there's two elements to the conference. And I was asked the other day on a different podcast, which is nowhere near as good as your one. Quite right, too. <laughs> I was asked the other day, you know, is the fact we're having this discussion a problem? Does it look like a distraction? Does it look like we're talking to ourselves, basically? I don't think so. Um, uh, and even if it does, tough, right? We have to have this discussion with the Scottish National Party independence is our north star and we need a strategy to 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 achieve that but as well as the independence debate there are debates on many of the other big issues that matter to voters there are debates on climate change technology uh migration public services the economy many many things that really matter to people so of course, there is a big focus on the independence debate, but the package of debate in the round, I think, is a, a really good, a really healthy one. But in order to get the independence debate right, which I know is the one that all the journalists are interested in, it's the one that party members are understandably and correctly interested in, I'm interested in. In order to get that right, I think we need an end to short-term thinking. 
and we need to understand, I think, some of the changes that are currently taking place in Scottish politics and have been building up over time. We know from polling, we know from research, we know from the Rutherglen by-election that there are many voters who support independence, who, who vote SNP, who will be happy to lend their vote elsewhere, mostly to Labour, at the next general election. We know the desire to remove the Tories from office is so palpably correctly strong. And so when you've got these big changes and shifts happening in politics, in economics, and in the column I've, I've got for this weekend, Scotsman, uh, one of the things I say that the party needs to do is zoom right out. You know, this isn't just happening in Scotland as a microcosm. You have got global social economic insecurities ripping across the Western world, driving things like inflation, a war in Europe climate change, all of these big, big changes that are happening are necessarily feeding down into changes at national and local level. So we need to then think, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as a government in Edinburgh? What does it mean for us as a party of independence? The idea that we can just pick up from the 19th of September 2014 and, you know, tinker around the edge a bit and, you know, obviously there are some very obvious changes to the political settlement, Brexit, economic circumstances and all the rest of it. But the idea that you can just pick up from then and tinker, that's not an option. So we now need to rethink the strategy in the context of a changed and changing Scotland. And to do that, we need to listen to what voters are telling us, telling us what their priorities are, rethinking about where we need to fine-tune ourselves. We need to get our mojo back for good, sound government, long-term strategic thinking, whether that's on public service delivery or indeed on on achieving independence and doing it in a way that allows us to build a whole new coalition, a whole new generation of voters behind those ideas. You know, one of the big mistakes we could make is to run away from these changes and shifts that are happening. We should lean into them. We should do it with confidence and we should shape change. If we are going to be the party of change makers, you only do that by shaping change. Many opportunities lie in that for political parties, especially so when you're a party of government. The the question that kind of comes off the back of that is, you know, has it been a strategic mistake to look at a general election as a demonstration of support and kind of put that in people's people's minds? Because if you look at the polling, the polling is fascinating in this regard because you have a really clear split between people who are pro-independence and who is willing to vote for Labour at the next general election. It's clear that like the, the years, and it has been years, of SNP messaging in Scotland of we have to get the Tories out of Westminster has resulted in SNP voters being willing to back Labour at the next general. Whereas at the Holyrood voting intentions, the SNP still retains a relatively you know, healthy lead as Labour take advantage of the Tory collapse. I mean, th- this feels like you know, a focus on the general election as a demonstration of support that Nicola Sturgeon first brought to the fore, that that, that was a strategic error that might un- undermine Hamza, Hamza Youssef at the next general election in terms of his leadership. I mean, Hamza's got a blank sheet of paper here uh, hmm. and he can he can be really bold, he can be really ambitious and strike out in a very, very different way. I think we can take Labour on. There is no rule that says Scottish Labour has to come back as a dominant force in Scottish politics. And I think too many 
I think too many in the in in the political and the and the journalist world just think that that's a given and it's a thing that's definitely going to happen. I don't think that is the case. There's no rule that says it has to happen, and it will only happen if we misread the country. It will only happen if we misread what voters, including independent supporters, are telling us. So there's plenty of ground there for us to take Labour on. I believe wholeheartedly we can take them on. We can take them on around issues of migration, powers for the parliament. Yes, the democratic right to a referendum for which there exists not just um, mandates at elections and to parliaments, but we know that the public believe a mandate exists as per polling. And uh, in the paper I produced in February, and the numbers will probably have shifted a bit since then, two-thirds of the public believe there is a mandate for an independence referendum. They are not all independent supporters. But I think part of the problem with saying you're going to have a de facto referendum is that you're trying to solve the wrong issue. And that is to say that you are trying to solve our own frustration at the lack of progress towards a referendum. And there's only one thing worse than being frustrated yourself as a party, and that is frustrating the public. I argued then, as I argue now, the policy of a referendum is the right way to go. But let's be honest, support for independence hovers at around 50%. I argued back then, as I argue now, part of the reason the referendum mandate was being dismissed was because that support wasn't high enough. I think that's wrong, but we have to deal in the reality that we're in, which is a very hostile Scotland office in London. That's unlikely to change in terms of a referendum as per the next Labour government if support for independence only hovers at around 50%. So we've got a job to do in terms of a refreshed case for independence. We've got a job to do in terms of taking the country forward on that. And again, I don't think that's something we need to shy away from. So in my view, a general election as a de facto referendum, that's before we even get to, by the way, you know, it's a franchise that works against us, voter ID, you know, it's for the government in Westminster to decide the date, you know, all of these things and many other problems with it. I think it was always the wrong thing to do. I can totally understand why it's a natural reaction to where we are. And I think it's a strategic error. Just to go back to something Connor brought up at the beginning, the kind of many problems the SNP is facing. I was interested in your reaction, Stuart, to the dramatic defection of Lisa Cameron to the Conservatives. It's obviously the first time I think that an SNP politician has kind of crossed the floor to a unionist party. It kind of marks a, a bit of a moment. What's your reaction to that? And also, do you recognise her comments about the kind of toxic bullying atmosphere that she said existed in the SNP Westminster group? Look, I don't want to diminish what she's had to say on that, um, but, uh, but I can only answer your question honestly, and that is, no, I don't recognise it. My understanding is that she did speak with Stephen Flynn and Mary Black, the leader and the deputy leader, fairly recently at dinner. I've no idea what was said, but it's not something I recognise. But Lisa, for some time, has been on defection watch, uh, even, I mean, going back some time, I'm going back even pre-COVID, and defection watch to the Tories. It was a kind of openly joked about secret, uh, and not just in the SNP. Um, so when Hamza said yesterday, it's probably the least surprising news since his election as leader, he's spot on when he says that. And I think it's really down to the fact that she was going to get horsed in a selection. And I rather suspect had it not been for the fact that the previous two elections were snap elections, that our selection processes were somewhat expedited as a result of that, she would probably have been deselected 
either at 2019 or at 2017. East Kilbride is next door to my own constituency. I know members there very well, very good long-standing campaigners. They've been deeply unhappy with Lisa for some time as a constituency representative and as a party representative. They've now got a great candidate in Grant Costello, who's local, bright, enthusiastic, full of energy. And good luck to them. And, you know, Lisa's probably just one step closer to her dream of a seat in the House of Lords. Do you think the the SNP leadership should have picked up the phone to her to try and kind of build bridges? I mean, if you if you listen to what she's saying, she no feels question. ignored. I think, yeah, I, I think I think it's always good to pick up the phone um, where there are problems, whether you perceive those problems to be real or not. It's always good to talk, right? There's, there's never an argument against talking and dialogue and and trying to see off problems snowballing into something bigger that they they don't need to i'm totally unfamiliar with exactly what her complaint is i don't know about you know when she says about an atmosphere of bullying and all the rest of it again i'm not going to diminish what she's had to say i don't know if she spoke to the previous leader and deputy leader about this the former chief whips we've had i have no idea but there are more sides to this story than a 50 pence piece, uh, as I've outlined some of to you this morning, uh, Alistair. And she's made her decision. She's gone to the Tories. And if that's to get a release from toxic uh, environment politics, good luck. Talking of another backbench rebel, if you like, you mentioned earlier about a broad across political divides, SNP being the, the right way forward. What did you make? of the decision to, at the minute, provisionally suspend Fergus Ewing from the SNP MSP group? So he was he was suspended on the basis of a confidence vote against a government minister. I mean, you can't expect any other outcome other than a suspension. And he got the most, it wasn't even a slap on the wrist, it was a tickle on the wrist. He was suspended for a week during the recess, for goodness sake. Um, and I've got a lot of time for Fergus. We probably disagree on on a few things but he's a Ewing which is you know the closest thing we have to royalty in the SNP and I think that what's happened is we've shown that it doesn't matter (laughs) it doesn't matter who you are you're subject to the same rules and standing orders as everybody else you know if I had been an MSP and voted against a, a serving minister I would have expected to be disciplined for it he was not disciplined and it's very this is kind of being forgotten in some of the coverage he's not being disciplined because he's a he's criticising the government's performance on DRS or short-term lets or, you know, the various issues that he's he's been bringing up for some time or issues are closer to home for him, the A9 and, and HPMAs and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important that you have people who are willing to, willing to both privately and publicly push the government, push the envelope to do better. That's always important. But in any, I can't think of a parliament a political party in a parliament in any democratic system where you could vote against your own, in a confidence vote against your own ministers and expect there to be no, expect there to be no comeback on that. It was just, it's just mad. You have to know nothing about politics to think that. But he'll be out for a week and then I'm, I'm quite sure he'll come back. I, I, I saw he's maybe going to, he's maybe going to appeal it and I don't know what the process for that for that is but I think the SNP is better for having Fergus Ewing in it and the sooner he's back in the better but I hope he behaves do you th- do you think he that that response though from from Hamza Yusuf kind of emboldens 
particularly the, the rebels within the MSP group, who are pushing for arguably a more Salmonite approach, a kind of more broad, broader based, you know, slightly right of centre, you know, politics. It emboldens them to go, we're not being listened to, we're not listening to business, we're failing, and ergo, the first minister's failing. No, because he wasn't he wasn't disciplined because he feels we're not listening to business or not listening to the rural parts of Scotland or whatever it might be. He was disciplined on the issue of a confidence vote. But I take your point more broadly, Connor. You know, does it embolden people to to say we're not being listened to? Um, I have to say, in what Hamza has said publicly and what Hamza has said privately, and I won't breach any confidences, but what he said privately when he's come to our group at Westminster, from what I know he's said to other colleagues across the party, the party leader's door is more open than at any time I have known it. Um, and that's not a, I'm not criticising the way things were done before. I always found Nicola's door open, but that was maybe partly because we share a constituency, I have no idea. But he has made it clear to colleagues, no matter what side of the party you're on, no matter who you voted for, whatever your views on performance of government or Butte House agreement, the guy is willing to talk. And you can't criticise him for that. And you might not always get what you want from the leaders you engage with, but I, the willingness to have dialogue is is more open than it's ever been. You, you mentioned um, Lisa Cameron had been on Defection Watch for a while. I think it's in the mail today that a senior MSP unnamed warning of further defections coming down the road, presumably also to the Conservatives and maybe even to, to Labour. Who would be top of your defection watch list? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've no idea. Even if I'd thought about it, I'm not sure I would answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Worth a go. <laughs> I, I suppose the thing I would say is that, you know, times are rough because of various events, police investigation, change of leadership. You know, change is always hard, especially in a political party like the SNP. There are various events that are just completely out with our control, the police investigation being the most obvious one. And then you've also got the natural laws of politics, right? You know, what goes up has to come down. But what is not a natural law of politics, as I alluded to earlier, is to say that Labour has to come back. And if you think the answer to delivering good government, to keeping the SNP in government, which in order to achieve independence you have to do, if you think the answer to that is to scurry off to Labour or the Tories, then heaven help you. You've obviously, Fergus Ewing's big beef, well, one of his big beefs is with the Scottish Green Party. You know, he's, he's labelled them extremists. He had that kind of semi-famous line in Hollywood where he, he called them wine bar revolutionaries. And obviously, he's not the only one that has problems with the Butte House Agreement, that cooperation agreement with the Greens. You know, I was speaking to Ivan McKee yesterday and he was saying that he wants a, a discussion on the future of that agreement. Uh, and again, he's far from he's far from alone in that. I think those who are calling for an end to the Butte House Agreement or a discussion about it, because let's be honest, they want the discussion so that we can have a vote to end it, and they should be upfront about that. I think they're trying to. I think they're getting at the wrong thing. The problem isn't the agreement, right? I think the agreement works. It was endorsed overwhelmingly by party members. I suspect if we had a vote on it, it would be endorsed again quite overwhelmingly, uh, by by party members. Um, but I, I think they're going after the wrong thing. The thing that we need to get back to is just our module for good, sound government, good delivery 
in government. So the problem's not the agreement or the framework in, in which governing is done. The thing we need to get back into is good government. And look, that is massively challenging given the challenges that exist across public services, the challenges that exist demographically in Scotland, recovery from the pandemic, which I'm amazed we've almost stopped talking about you know, recovery, not just in terms of the NHS, but in terms of schools, in terms of local government, in terms of the transport network and all these other things. So I think it's just the problem for me has never been the agreement. The problem for me has never been the Greens. The Greens are a thing in Scotland. I used to only have to say this to to other MPs down south, particularly Tory MPs, where I would have to remind them the Greens are a political force up here and have been for some time. Uh, I'm amazed that we're, uh, I'm having to say this to some people in my own my own party. And look, I am not a Scottish Green. I am a, an SNP MP. I believe in the SNP. I want people to vote SNP. And I want the SNP-led government to do well and keep doing well. And I don't think we have got anything at all to fear from working with a party like the, the Scottish Green Party. We worked with them during the independence referendum. I think bringing them into government has been good for them. It's been good for them in the polls, uh, but I think it's been good for their. This will sound incredibly um, like I'm, I'm patting them on the head, but I think it's good for their political outlook and 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 development as a political party who have only ever been in opposition throughout the course of the parliament until we brought them into into government. So for me, the issue has never been the Butte House Agreement. It has never been the party that we're we're working with, you know, here in Glasgow, we work with the Greens at a local government level. It's not a formal arrangement of any kind. I think it's just we need to get back to fine-tuning our ears into what the public are telling us, what the public want and need, and driving really smart strategic delivery of public services. That's what we need to do. We just need to get better. That's all it is. Well, what do you, I mean, it's very easy to say we need to get back to good governance, but what does that actually mean in practice? Like, well, what are the things that you would like to see that aren't being done at the moment? Well, look, we've obviously had a few things that, uh, quite high profile things that Hamza's had to uh, roll back on or scrap from the previous uh, administration, HPMAs, um, DRS, although obviously with DRS there's the issue of a much more activist Scotland office much more willing to tinker in a way that previously it did not. It, it treaded very, very lightly. Uh, and that's a whole new political reality that we need to be able to deal with. And also have the confidence and the knack, yes, to listen to the business community. The business community doesn't get to govern. That's the job of the government. But they need to feel listened to. They are wealth creators in Scotland. They absolutely have a place at the heart of delivering a social democratic political platform that you would expect an SNP Green government to deliver. And some of the good things we've been doing, you know, the way that we've handled public sector pay issues, managed to minimise strike disruption more up here than down south. So we do know how to do good government. There are plenty of areas where we are doing good government, but there are clearly areas where we can work on well, thank you very much, Stuart, for uh, coming on the Steamy. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Alistair, as well. We'll be have the latest from SFP Conference this weekend in Aberdeen, and you'll hear more from us back in Holyrood, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. Thank you very much at home for listening. Goodbye.